the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you, will, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts to these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Not turned your mic on. <laughs> Have you ever gotten a really good letter from someone? Uh, so good that you saved it somewhere in your house. And you put it in a shoebox in the top of your closet, put it in a drawer somewhere. Uh, my wife Ashley and I dated long distance through college uh, for several years. And so in my closet, I've got this whole box of letters that she wrote me through, through those years. I've saved all of them, and it would be on the top of the list of things that I was going to grab if our house was on fire and we were trying to run out of the house. But, you know, you can tell a lot about a letter by how it's addressed or the salutations. You know, if you've ever, ever formally learned letter writing, the beginning is the salutations. Uh, for example, I've always gone by my middle name my whole life. I'm a middle name guy, Carson, instead of my first name, which is Donald, actually, and that's what's on all my official paperwork and such. Uh, but this actually proves somewhat handy, I've found, because when I get an email or if I get letters in the mail, if they're addressed, Dear Donald, I know that the people writing the letter are probably only interested in me for my money or for official government purposes. You know, again, money. But if it's addressed, Dear Carson or Dearest Carson or hey babe, or Carsoni instead of dear, Car dear Donald, then I know the letter will most likely contain something from a friend or more personal in nature. How it's addressed will change the way I hear and know what's coming in the rest of the letter. So this letter, 3 John, was written by the Apostle John to a man named Gaius. And you probably noticed in the reading, John uses a particular word to address Gaius, not once, not even twice, or three times, four times in the letter. 
beloved. And John is pretty fond of using this word, especially when he's preparing to give some sort of encouragement or challenge or instruction to his readers. And we actually saw this over and over as we read through the book of 1 John. I don't know if you noticed, but 1 John chapter 2, John says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Next chapter, chapter 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And he goes on the next verse to say, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. A little later in the chapter, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. A few verses later, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And just a few verses later. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And John's repetition of this, I think, is more than just coincidental, Victorian-era, frou-frou-sounding titles that he likes to use just to sound old school, right? Some of, your, um, some of your Bible translations may render this word, uh, dear friend, and they're trying to modernize the term, but I think that that translation loses some of the impact of what John is trying to get across. I don't think it's quite strong enough, doesn't carry the weight that beloved does. John's trying to convey something that he has great affection for the people that he's writing to, for his readers, and, and all who would read his letters later. He wants us to know that we are loved, and that Gaius is loved, yes, by John, but more importantly, by God himself. So it's no surprise that in John's gospel, his gospel about the life of Jesus, John never refers to himself by name. He always refers to himself as simply the disciple Jesus loved. To be God's beloved. It's a huge deal for John. And if you will receive this letter, this letter of 3 John that we're going to study today, as it is addressed to one who is beloved, it will change the way you hear everything in the letter. Um, Pastor David Prince gives a helpful, helpful example to think about it. He says, I know a family who adopted an older child from an unspeakably horrific orphanage in another country. When they brought her home, one of the things that they told her was that she was expected to clean her room every day. When she heard about that responsibility, she fixated on it and saw it as a way that she would earn her family's love. In other words, she isolated the responsibility and applied it to her existing frame of thinking that was shaped by life in the orphanage. Thus, every morning when her parents came into her room, it was immaculate. And she would sit on the bed and she would say, my room is clean. Can I stay? Do you still love me? Her words broke her new parents' hearts. And so eventually the girl learned to hear her parents' words as their unconditionally beloved child who would never be forsaken, not as a visitor trying to earn her place in the family. After she knew that she was an inseparable part of the family story, even correction and discipline did not cause her to question her family's love for her. She understood correction and discipline to be part of what it meant to be in the family. Now, the letter of 3 John contains some very simple, some very challenging, 
and some very direct instructions and encouragements for us as a church. But as we hear these, don't skip over the salutations, beloved. It's important. Because for many of us, the idea that God loves us is just kind of that. It's a nice idea. Not something that we really have a sense of or enjoy on a daily basis. But truth be told, the love of God for you is the most important thing about you. It's the most real thing about you. It matters more and it's more real than being loved or unloved by anyone else. It matters more than your height or weight or wealth or talents or disabilities or looks or popularity or your past or your family situation. It matters more. So before we dig into the letter any further, perhaps you just need to hear and believe the words of the infinite holy God given to us in Scripture when he says things like, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've formed your inward parts and knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not love me, but I loved you first and did not spare my own son for you. You are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. These are the very words of God given to us in Scripture. What a love. What a love. And if you do not know this love, if you do not enjoy this love, then why don't you pray with me now that God would open your eyes to come to know and believe the love that God has for you. So let's pray, and then we'll continue on with the letter. Great God, we could not earn your love. You just chose to give it. And you chose to give it at great cost to yourself. And so I pray that you would open the understanding of each person here to know and experience your love even now so that we might receive and obey your instructions for us rightly. And it's only through your son, Jesus, that we have confidence to ask for these things. Amen. Okay, so in this short letter, there's essentially three encouragements or instructions for us, the beloved of God. First encouragement. Beloved, walk in the truth. Let's look at verses one through four together. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So clearly, John, the elder, has great affection for this man, his friend, Gaius. And John has received a good report from some traveling Christians that Gaius is walking in the truth. And this simply means that Gaius is a person whose behavior matches up with his beliefs. He's living out the faith that he professes. Gaius is consistently displaying love and service to God, uh, to his fellow believers, and to his non-Christian neighbors. And he's especially praised for his practice of hospitality, as we'll see in just a moment. And so John, is, he's happy about this, right? He makes a pretty strong statement early in the letter that he has no greater joy than to hear that Gaius is walking in the truth. Now, Gaius is probably not John's physical child, right? But John cares for him with the affection and care of a spiritual father. Now, before I became a dad, one of the things that actually used to bug me a bit 
uh, and having conversations with grown-ups, uh, with children, is that when asking about how they were doing and what was new with them and how things were going in life for them, usually the response went something like, oh, I'm doing pretty good. My daughter just moved back to college this weekend. Or my son just broke his arm yesterday. It's like, hey, wait a minute. I asked how you were doing. And all you want to do is tell me about your kids and their life and what they have going on. Are you like hiding your personal life behind the life of your kids? You know, what's the deal? And, and maybe that does happen. But to be fair, you know, now that I'm a dad, I think I understand, <laughs> I understand this a little bit better. It's just a reality that my welfare is inextricably linked to the welfare of my children. And so when you ask about me, you kind of do ask about them, sorry, right? Uh, but my, my greatest joys, my greatest sorrows are wrapped up in the life of my children. And so church, let me just say that your pastors and leaders here feel very much the same way about each of you. Our welfare is bound up in yours. Our joy is inextricably linked to your walking in the truth because Christ has placed fatherly affection for you in our hearts. So why are we always urging you to walk in the truth and live faithful lives that honor God and all that stuff? Well, part of it, honestly, is kind of selfish, <laughs> right? Because it really does make us happy to see those that we lead live consistent, growing, obedient lives. And it really does make us really sad when we see those that we lead and love walk away from the truth. And so I don't even know how motivating this is for you, but if nothing else, when you are faced with decisions that might pull you away from obedience to Christ and faithfulness to his words, think of the emotional welfare of your leaders, okay? <laughs> because your choices really affect our joy. And I know it's totally self-interested of me to mention that, but at least I'm trying to be upfront with you about it, right? So, uh, secondly, from this, this section of the book, I think this is a question worth tossing around this week. What brings you the greatest joy? If you were to say, I have no greater joy than, how would you fill in the blank? What really makes you the most happy? What do you look forward to the most? growing portfolio, an afternoon alone on the couch, not necessarily bad things, but the greatest things. This verse helps us evaluate whether or not our strongest desires are godly desires. Um, so for those of you with physical children, man, are, are you zealous for their spiritual growth just as much as you are for their academic success or their athletic prowess? What's your greatest hope for your children? Do you long to see them walk in truth, even if that path takes them to faraway, risky places? And for those of you without physical children, this is still absolutely relevant for you because this passage isn't really talking about physical children necessarily, but about those who John has a spiritually vested interest, those who we have a spiritually vested interest or not. So whether you have biological children or not, the most important question is, especially for those of us who have been Christians for some time, do you have spiritual children? Do you have people that you are personally, spiritually investing in? Who are they? What are their names? 
If you can't think of anyone, <laughs> you probably don't have anyone, and you probably should begin praying and preparing. God, who would you bring me that I could love and I could mentor and disciple and, and begin investing in? Because if you're not actively investing in other believers, I think you're missing out on one of the greatest joys in the Christian life. Uh, Johnny Cash actually discovered this late in life, and he wrote a song about it. One of the lyrics from the song says, I prayed to feel more joy in my salvation. More, more joy as a Christian. A selfish prayer I finally came to know. For the greatest joy while living, the greatest joy while living, comes to me when I am giving. Giving children bread of life and watch them grow. So beloved, walk in the truth. Second encouragement from the book. Beloved, work for the truth. Let's look at verse 5. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So last week, if you remember, as we studied the book of 2 John, we saw that John wanted his readers to be careful. To be careful not to support false teachers that would travel through their churches or through their homes. Don't host them. Don't give them money. But in this letter, John shows us that for those who are genuine Christian missionaries, we should lavishly and generously support them. As he says, in a manner worthy of God. And as we do so, we get to work for the truth as fellow workers, meaning we also get to play a critical part in spreading the message of Jesus throughout the world. And so here, John praises Gaius for his hospitality and support of these Christian missionaries and gives us, gives us at least three reasons why we too should support Christian missionaries. Number one, we should support them because they've gone out for the sake of the name the name of, of Jesus, right? We should honor and support these people because they, they make real sacrifices to leave and go to faraway places that are not exactly comfortable, right? Missionary life, I don't think, is usually living out one episode after another of Anthony Bourdain, no reservations. We just taste new food and wander around the countryside. It's amazing, all the colors and, you know, languages. But there's, and to be fair, missionary life is rather adventurous sometimes, but that's not why they go. They go because they believe with the first apostles, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under, under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. So they go out because they believe that the name of Jesus is the only name that's worthy of praise from every tongue on the earth. And that his name is the only name that can truly save men and women, forgive them of their sin, and reconcile them to God. Secondly, we should support them because they aren't collecting any money from those that they're sharing the gospel with. Right, think about this for a minute. What does it do for the integrity of the gospel if a, if a missionary moves into a town and says, hey, I'm here to spend my time telling you about the love of God for you given through his son, Jesus. Also, while I'm here, if you could give me some money to help with my expenses, that would be great. Right, I see. I see what this is all about. It's a racket. In John's day, and in ours, there are plenty of false teachers and false missionaries that would go around offering God's blessing, or His healing, or His salvation for a small fee. 
And true Christian missionaries would not do this. Right? They would not charge or peddle the word of God for profit. They wouldn't charge to, to share the message of Jesus with people. And so we're kind of left with two options. Right? One, missionaries take a second job in addition to their work as missionaries, or churches support them, or some combination of, of the two. And while there may be a good time for missionaries to work in order to build rapport and raise support, many times we place an unnecessary burden on missionaries by expecting them to convert unbelievers, plant churches, raise families, and do it all alongside full-time employment. John Stott sums it up well. He says, there are many good causes which we may support, but we must support our brothers and sisters whom the world does not support. In other words, who else is going to do it? And then third, we must support missionaries because then we get to be fellow workers for the truth. And this really is a pretty awesome thought. You can be a co-worker for the truth right alongside your missionary brothers and sisters by your support. Um, a young lady came to our staff meeting this week uh, to share with our staff about a ministry clinic that she is joining in Haiti that provides medical care and functions as an orphanage for abandoned children and a recovery center for malnourished, i.e. starving children. So children that are emaciated, abandoned, can come to this clinic and receive nourishment. And as they stay, they also hear the good news of a God who made them and loves them and values them and gave his life for them. So then that was 1.30 in the afternoon. Later that afternoon at 3.30, I was meeting with a group of senior high guys. And we were going through a study, uh, through a book, talking about the practice of, of giving and financial management and how to how to spend our money wisely and save wisely. And as we were talking, this passage from first, what book are we in? Third John just totally came to life for me. Because John shows us that giving, giving is about way, way more than just fulfilling a duty or punching a checklist. It's not even really about making sacrifices like giving up lattes for a year or something. It's about the joy of being a fellow worker for the truth. Even beyond giving to the regular ministries of our church, some of which does go to support missionaries, but there, there are just so many amazing things going on in our church family that we can be a part of supporting. I mean, think about this for a minute. Like bringing physical and spiritual food to starving children in Haiti. Don't you want to be a co-worker for that? Planting a church in one of the loneliest cities in America. Don't you want to be a co-worker for that? Freely offering hope to families in our community who are without a church home that need counseling care and the message of Jesus? Don't you want to be a co-worker for that? Hiking into remote villages to share with people for the first time that they can know the God who created them and loves them and came to earth to die for them. Don't you want to be a co-worker for that? <laughs> I mean, all the things that we speak spend our money on so frivolously pale in comparison to the beauty of the things that we could be co-workers with. And then all of a sudden, giving is not about spending less or personal sacrifice. It's about spending well and spending for things that honestly, in the end, will probably bring us much more joy. And it's not just about financial support either, although that's a big part of it. So in case you just don't have any dough, right, know that Gaius seems to set a good example 
and does all sorts of things to help these missionaries, from housing them to encouraging them to financing them. And so John is commending Gaius for his good work here. And I think as a church, uh, North Wake could be commended here as, as well. We sit in a bit of a unique location and have a unique privilege of being a sending church for so many people on the mission field. And so I think the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 are, are quite appropriate. He says, Now, as to love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. What does it mean for us to excel still more as a sending church? What does it mean for us to excel still more as a supporting church? What does it mean for us to excel still more at extending hospitality to our missionaries, even when they live across the globe? I mean, we've sent out a lot of people from our fellowship to work as missionaries, 40-plus active units, I think. And they need, they need our support. I'll never forget a conversation that I had with a missionary family in Indonesia. When I was in college, I got to go spend part of a summer with them. They worked for MAF, so flying planes into the jungle and all sorts of awesome things like that. And they graciously hosted me in their home uh, for the summer just to come and see, see what they did. And it was an awesome trip. Uh, the very end of the trip, uh, we sat around their dinner table. And I just remember sipping on hot chocolate in 95 degree weather and 115% humidity, if that's a thing. I think it is. And just asking, okay, I'm going to go back tomorrow. Uh, is there anything I can do for you guys? Anything I can send you? Anything you would, you would like? Anything I can do for you back, back in the States? And their response is still, is still vivid in my mind. They said, just don't forget about us. In the 10 years that we've been here, you're the only person from our church besides our parents to come visit us. So it's easy to feel forgotten. And North Wake is privileged to send out as many missionaries as we do. But we can also be a hard place to be sent from because a lot of people's friends also end up moving to other places as we send them out. And pretty soon, the people we send don't have anyone who keeps regular contact with them from our church, and so it doesn't take long before they can feel disconnected. Now, you might say, well, I don't really know any of our far-flung families. It'd be weird for me to go visit them or to start sending them emails. Well, you know, that kind of misses the point because hospitality means love of strangers, right? These missionaries were strangers to Gaius as well. Almost every missionary family I've ever visited were strangers when I got there, <laughs> but they were never strangers when I left. So how can you help us excel in this? I mean, seriously, dream about this with your small group. Make a plan. Could you make a plan to regularly send encouraging emails or set up Skype nights? Could you make a plan to take your worship guide home and actually pray for these units we've sent out throughout the week? Could you make a plan to send them a care package? Could you make a plan to send someone from your small group to see them? Could you make a plan to make sure that when they come back here, they have a guest room available for them to stay in? So what, whatever this might look like, I strongly feel that this is a critical area in which God has placed our church, in which we could excel. 
God has allowed us to be a sending congregation. So let's dream about what it means to really own that and send people and support them in a manner worthy of God himself. Now the next bit of this section gives us an example, really the prime example of what might hinder that sort of selfless sending and support. And this is the case study of Diotrophes. Am I saying his name right? Here we go. Okay. So, verse 9. I've written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Okay, so good news, bad news. Churches have had problems for a long time, (laughs) ever since the very first churches. And Gaius finds himself right in the middle of this conflict. Uh, Diotrephes was apparently some sort of leader in the church community. And John had previously written another letter to the church, but it seems that Diotrephes either intercepted the letter and destroyed it, or outright rejected it when it was read to the assembled congregation, and then thereby rejected the authority of John himself. And the tricky thing here is we, we don't exactly know what was going on in this conflict or, or why all this was happening, right? I mean, why would Diotrephes reject John's authority? He was one of Jesus' disciples. That doesn't seem like a good idea. But why would he slander him? Why would he not welcome missionaries? And why would he kick people out of the church that did want to welcome missionaries, right? He sounds like a real jerk. So we, we don't know the specifics But John does tell us the most important part, the root of the issue, and that's simply the sin of pride. Diotrephes likes to be first. And this me-firstness is what lies at the heart of his actions. Again, John Stott shoots pretty straight here. He says, Diotrephes did not honor the missionaries for setting out for the sake of the name because he was more concerned for the glory of his own name. Personal vanity still lies at the root of most dissensions in every local church today. Personal vanity. So pride, ambition, these are the great enemies to mission. Humility, hospitality, these are the great allies of mission. So we must watch out for this kind of me-firstness in our hearts that springs up so easily. My needs must be met first. My preferences must be obeyed. My hobby horses must be ridden. And my skills must be recognized. This is what divides the church and derails our mission. And this warning needs to be especially potent for those who would carry some sort of leadership role in the church. Because for leaders to be filled with selfish ambition is a disaster. Because people will imitate what they see modeled them for them by their leaders. Which brings us to the final encouragement from John's letter. Beloved, watch for the truth. Verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. So John closes his letter 
by urging Gaius not to imitate the evil example of Diotrephes, but to follow the good example of Demetrius. And this is helpful, right? Because John did not just send this letter to the church telling them what to do. He sent Demetrius to them to show them what to do. Right? John knew that these people would need more than just a letter. They would need the living letter of a godly life. Okay, and why would they need this? <laughs> it's because we all learn by example. We're all natural imitators. I have a two-year-old son, and there's some things I'd rather him not imitate, and yet he does. But it's how we learn to talk. It's how we learn to walk. It's how we learn to play. It's how we learn sports. It's how we learn music. It's just how we learn. So I'm guessing that John emphasizes visible modeling because of his years that he spent walking with Jesus, who was the master modeler. It seemed to be his preferred method of teaching his followers. You can skim through the Gospels and see all kinds of verses like this. John chapter 1, there's these two people following Jesus, uh, and they want to go with him. And so he turns and sees them following them and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come, and you will see. A little bit later in the chapter, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, who had become one of his disciples, and said to him, follow me to go with him. John chapter 13, after he washes the feet of the disciples, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Jesus doesn't just tell his disciples, hey, you guys ought to love each other. You ought to really sacrifice for each other. You should be humble. He gives an example. He acts it out. And in Mark chapter 4, when he's choosing the very first disciples, it says he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might, don't skip to the end of the verse, uh, watch these two words, that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. The first part is that they would just be with him. So he could show them. The Apostle Paul also emphasized the importance of godly imitation. Philippians chapter 3 says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Next chapter, Philippians 4, he says, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So John knew that Gaius and this church needed to watch flesh and blood, real life examples of how to walk in the truth. And so he sent them Demetrius. This past summer, we had a, a little problem in our home. We've been proud homeowners for about a year and a half now. Um, but after a heavy rain, our 40-year-old poorly constructed septic tank decided to implode which I guess is better than explode, right? Septic tank, you want implosion, yeah. Which meant that we had to tear up our yard and tear up a portion of our driveway to get everything we needed to, to get to all the pipes and everything that we had to use to repair the, the septic. So this is a problem, right? The yard was and still pretty much is shredded. Uh, we could no longer park in our garage and I didn't know how to pour concrete and we just spent a whole bunch of money on a septic tank, so we're just living the dream. You know what I'm saying? The American dream, baby. It's right here. So eventually I decided that I was going to need to put down some new concrete myself, because it wasn't so much that contractors would want to come do it, yada, yada. So I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. So I do what any good millennial homeowner would do. I watch some YouTube videos. 
and I order some concrete. How hard could it be? Turns out pouring concrete is not rocket science, but if you've never done it before, it's not as easy as it looks. And it's also something you don't want to screw up, right? Driveway is kind of a semi-permanent addition to your home, right? So thankfully, I had a friend come over and show me how to do it so that I did not look like this and my driveway did not end up a great big pile of concrete epic failure. So even for relatively simple tasks, there is no substitute for a live, in-person example. The first time you've done something, if you've never done it, it's just like awkward. You know, spreading that concrete around, look like I have no idea what I'm doing. But if you have someone to show you, you can get it done. So when it comes to Christian growth and discipleship, don't be ashamed or embarrassed to ask for examples. Ask someone to show you how to do things. We all need help and growth in all sorts of different areas. So if you know someone that seems to have a close walk with God, ask them to show you how they pray, to pray with you. If you know someone who has a great passion for evangelism, ask them to take you with them and show you what they do and how they share. If you know someone who seems to parent their children really well, ask them and their family over for dinner and then feed their kids a lot of sugar and just kind of watch and, you know, see how, see if they're the real deal or not. Okay, that's called entrapment, uh, but you know what I mean. For my own part, even as a Christian minister, uh, in reflecting on 3 John, I've realized I probably do way more telling than I do showing. And I need to think about how to correct that imbalance. Because it's good to encourage others into Christian obedience. But it's better to invite them with you into that. And again, for those of us who have been Christians for a good while, have you ever just invited someone to join you as you pray and spend time with God and his word and just be willing to do that out loud, to be vulnerable enough to say, hey, I'm not perfect at this, but hey, come along. I'll show you, I'll show you how I pray. I'll, sh- I'll show you how I read the Bible. Parents, have you ever invited your children into that? Have you ever invited someone who's new to the faith into that? We all need examples. And you need someone. You need someone that you can watch and imitate. And so John would encourage you to watch for the truth and to choose your mentors wisely. Give some instructions here saying, choose those who have a good testimony from others, whose lives match up with their doctrine. They have a good testimony from the truth. And then... Imitate them. Do what they do. So, beloved, watch for the truth. Work for the truth. Walk in the truth. These are instructions given to us from a good father who calls us his beloved. And so, as the worship team comes back up, we're going to use this song as a time of, of consecration and prayer. And during the song, as you're singing these these great lyrics of surrender, I'd invite you to consider what changes God might have you make to your life in response to this letter. And perhaps you want to take a moment right where you're sitting to talk about this during the song or pray about this with your spouse or someone in your small group, and that's totally, totally fine. Or maybe you need to set a reminder to pray for and send an email to one of our far-flung families. Maybe God's already impressing you to do that and you just kind of put it off and you need to do that today. 
Perhaps you need to consider what ways God is calling you to reorganize your schedule or reprioritize your budget so that you can be a more effective co-worker with the truth and know the joy that comes from that. Or perhaps this morning you still just can't quite get past the word beloved. And you long to experience and know the love of God for you more deeply. You long for that to be more than just a mental concept to you. And if so, I'd love to talk with you or pray with you today. So let's pray. And then we'll stand and sing and, and think about these things together. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this good word that you have given us. And that you've said it to us so, so rightly. That you've called us your beloved. That you've made us your beloved at great cost to yourself. And so I pray that as we consider our lives and how we may need to change things so that we would walk faithfully in the truth so that we could be supporters of your mission and and of truth all around the world. That we would be able to consider these things from a place of stability, confidence in your love, and that it would propel us to greater and greater and happier and happier obedience as we live for you and as we help others to do the same. So would you give us wisdom? Give us wisdom, God for how we are to do this and give us courage and give us repentance for where we need to change. We pray all this through Christ's name. Amen.